New things are always opposed. So wrote the translators of the King James Bible when it was published in 1611. They ask, was there ever any project that anything in the way of newness or renewal that didn't endure many a storm of gainsaying and reproach? They went on to say, attempts to do good through either something completely new or revising something that had been done by others are welcomed with suspicion instead of love. New things are always opposed, even when, as those translators say, they deserve much respect and esteem. Simply because things are new, because they haven't been done before, they are rejected. Uh, And that's something we see at the beginning of this chapter. Something new is happening in the church. The old barrier between Jew and Gentile has been removed. Uh, So how will this change be received? How would you expect uh, verses 1 and 2 to read? Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party said, Great, this is amazing. The Old Testament prophecies about the gospel going to the nations of the earth are being fulfilled. Uh, How privileged we are to live in these days. Or did the circumcision party say, "Well, well, brilliant, we can't wait to meet these brothers and sisters in Christ from all the nations of the world. Well, no, sadly not. Rather, so predictably what happened is the circumcision party criticised them, saying, you went to uncircumcised men, Peter, and you ate with them. They say to Peter, you've done something different. You've done something that that we had never done before. And so it must be wrong. Now, wonderfully, this chapter ends with the gospel going out to, to more Gentiles. But before we can see that happen in practice, before that can become the norm, everyone needs to be on the same page when it comes to the theory Uh, And so this chapter divides quite nicely into two sections. Firstly, we'll look at the wideness of the gospel in theory. uh, And then secondly, the wideness of the gospel in practice. Uh, Spending a bit more time on the second one. So firstly, this morning, the wideness of the gospel in theory. It's never good to criticise someone when you don't know all the facts, is it? Rather than go to the person and say, well, I heard this, is it true? Or you said this, but what did you mean by that? Or, or it looked like you were doing this, were you? Or, or is there another explanation? Those, those are the questions that we should ask, but, but we often find that it's easier just to criticise. And that's what the circumcision party do here. We'll get to who these men are in a moment, but, but look at what they say. Verse 3, they, they criticise him, Peter, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. The problem with what Peter does, or what his accusers think is the problem, is that under the Old Testament ceremonial law, there were certain things that God had told the Jews that they weren't allowed to eat. 
And so eating with Gentiles and presumably eating the same things that they are eating would have been a problem. But those who attack Peter here, they would also have heard the reports in verse 1 that it spread throughout Judea of the Gentiles receiving the word of God. So, So they've heard these different reports. They know that there's something unusual going on. But when Peter comes to Jerusalem, rather than celebrate what's happening or asking him about what has happened, they just criticize him. And sadly, this is not an unknown reaction in churches where criticism can often be the first reaction. But at least Peter's critics criticize him to his face because it gives him a chance to respond in a way that criticizing someone behind their back doesn't. And so from verse 4 onwards, he recounts what has happened in the last chapter. His vision of the clean and unclean animals, the voice from heaven telling him, rise, kill and eat, but Peter refusing. And how after he saw the vision for the third time, these men arrive from Cornelius, telling him about Cornelius' vision with, of the angel and asking him to go with them. And how the Spirit told him to go and how he preached the word and the Spirit fell on him. So, so the circumcision party, they have heard some facts, but they only have a small part of the story. But here, uh, Peter has the opportunity to fill, fill in the blanks for them. In verse 16, Peter gives us an insight into what he was thinking when all that happened, which, which we don't get in the last chapter, uh, about how Peter remembered Jesus' promise when he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and notice there uh, how the Lord Jesus prophesied about that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Uh, people today talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit as if it's the Holy Spirit who does the baptism. But actually it's Jesus doing the baptism uh, baptizing with, in, or, or by the Holy Spirit, by, by pouring him out. And when Peter says in verse 17, who was I that I could stand in God's way? He's explaining why he baptized them. If they had the reality, how could he not also give them the sign? If the Holy Spirit had been poured out on them by the Lord Jesus... How could Peter not pour out water on them? So Peter justifies what, what he's done by, by telling them uh, by telling them the facts of what has happened and tying it in with, with what the Lord Jesus had said would happen. Now at this point we need to come back to the question of who the circumcision party are. We don't have much to go on here in Acts. But the same phrase is used in Galatians 2.12. In Galatians 2.12. And we know from the book of Galatians that the circumcision party were insisting on circumcision for Gentile Christians. We can nearly say then that the circumcision party wanted Gentiles to become Jews before they became Christians. 
They wanted them to become Jews and then they would let them become Christians. In other words, they're saying that in order to be saved, Gentiles had to submit to the Jewish ceremonial law. They had to be circumcised and they had to eat like Jews. And so the objection here in Acts would be that Peter has baptised these Gentiles without requiring them to be circumcised. How can you baptise these uncircumcised men, Peter, they're saying. But wonderfully, once they hear all the details of what has happened, that the Gentiles have believed the same message they believed, that the same Holy Spirit who had fallen on them has fallen on the Gentiles, they fall silent. And that silence means they realise As Peter said in verse 17, that to continue to protest and criticise would be to stand in God's way. And so in verse 18, they glorify God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And don't miss what that tells us about repentance Is repentance God's work or our work? Well, first and foremost, it is something that God works in us. Yes, we are commanded to repent, but ultimately repentance is something that God grants. Uh, That's just the language here in Acts. God has granted repentance. To use the language of the catechism, repentance is a saving grace. Repentance is part of God's grace to us. Now, if you're not born again this morning, that does not mean that you're to sit around and wait for God to grant you repentance. No, Jesus told the paralyzed man to pick up his bed and walk. And with that command came the ability to do it. When we are commanded to repent, we're to do it, trusting that God will give us the grace to do so. But as we do repent, we're to know that our desire and ability to repent comes from God and not from ourselves. So have you repented and put your trust in Jesus Christ? In verse 17, Peter here says, Who was I that I could stand in God's way? But if you haven't repented this morning, you are doing what an apostle wouldn't dare to do. And that is you are standing in God's way. How are you standing in God's way by not repenting? Well, because like the Pharisees and lawyers in Luke 7 verse 30 You're like them because we're told that they rejected the purpose of God for themselves. And if you are refusing to repent, you are rejecting the purpose of God for you. God's revealed purpose for you is that you would be saved. He desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Or is there a a specific sin that you're holding on to as a Christian Because if you are, if if there's one sin that that you're refusing to repent of, then you could have no confidence that your repentance and faith at the beginning of the Christian life were genuine. 
We've heard of Martin Luther's 95 Theses. And the very first one says, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. If God has truly granted you repentance, he will grant you repentance ongoing throughout your life. So whether you're an unbeliever this morning or whether you're a professing believer living in unrepentant sin, you are opposing the purpose of God for your life. But why would you do that? Because this is not a purpose that is harmful for you. God's purpose for you is that you would be happy for all eternity. Maybe it's because of all the, all the, the news about uh, uh, airplanes and flights and, and cancellations and so on at the minute. But, but it got me thinking this week of how refusing to become a Christian because of what you're worried you might miss out on. It would be like sitting in the departure lounge of an airport waiting to get on the plane for a holiday of a lifetime. But while you're waiting, you start playing a game on your phone and your gate is called, the final call comes and they even announce your name. But still you sit on, you don't want to stop playing, you don't want to to get up and walk onto the aeroplane because it will mean turning off your phone. And after all, you think, well, sure, if I stay here and, and if I decide I want to get up and move around, I'll have more freedom than I would crammed onto that plane. And ultimately, you don't get on the plane because you don't want to stop playing the enjoyable, to some extent, but utterly trivial game in front of you. And as a result, you, you'll miss out on pure joy. And in a way, this life is like that airport terminal. To come to churches to hear the announcement that there is an all-expenses-paid ticket. When the gospel is preached, you're being called to, to get up and to walk onto that plane. Even though many of those sitting around you in the departure lounge are, are just mindlessly sitting there, ignoring the announcement. But you're being called, as you are now, to identify with that other group of people who who are standing, who are are smiling, who have a sense of expectation, who are walking towards the plane, knowing that it, it will involve going through hardship for a brief time, but it's worth it because of what lies on the other side. God is calling you today. And if you miss out on eternal happiness, you will never be able to say, well, no one called me. No one told me. And so we need to forget about the idea of the decent, moral, non-Christian. Sadly, it is true that there are unbelievers who are nicer and more reliable and have greater integrity than Christians. But at the end of the day, the unbeliever is rejecting the purpose of God for their lives. And if you think your sins aren't so bad, or if you're a Christian but you love little because you think you have been forgiven little then realise that to remain outside of Christ is to stand in God's way. 
And if the Apostle Peter wouldn't have dared to do that, why do you think you can? How big a sin must it be to resist the purposes of God? What's all that got to do with the gospel going to the Gentiles? It has everything to do with it. Because you're a Gentile. God has sent the gospel to you. Are you going to accept it or reject it? He's calling you today. What will you do with that call? Will you keep on ignoring the announcement? So firstly, this morning, the wideness of the gospel in theory. But then secondly, the wideness of the gospel in practice. In a sense, verse 19 is like a flashback to the beginning of chapter 8, where persecution, rather than silencing or snuffing out the church, leads to the spread of the gospel. I really like the the quote from one commentator that I've put on the the back of the bulletin. Uh, Finding themselves driven by the winds of persecution into the midst of a thoroughly pagan and immoral society. These believers did not bemoan their lot, merely decry the vices of their neighbours or retreat into a getawise withdrawal. All things that we're tempted to do. All things that some Christians in our own day and age do do. But these early Christians, as we see in verse 19, they speak the word. And as we see from the end of the verse, most of them are speaking only to Jews. But some of them come from Cyprus and Cyrene, speaking to Greeks as well, which is what the word Hellenist in verse 20 has to refer to here. It's a bit of a flexible word, but it has to mean Greeks here. Antioch was described as the third city of the Roman world after Rome and Alexandria. It was a multicultural city. It was a city with a reputation for bad morals. But the believers who end up here bring the same message that they had brought elsewhere. Uh, We see at the end of verse 20 what their message is. They're preaching the Lord Jesus. And many believe... The big number of people who believe is mentioned three times. Verse 21, a great number of people who believed turned to the Lord. Verse 24, a great many people were added to the Lord. Verse 26, and they taught a great many people. So what explains these astounding results? We find the answer in verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And is there anything greater that could be said of a church than that? A church may not have a lot in terms of resources. But if the hand of the Lord is with us, what does that matter? And if the hand of the Lord is with us, how will we know? Well, it might not be the only way we know, but here the hand of the Lord being with them is, is the explanation for the conversions. And so if we are seeing conversions, let's rejoice in that, both because of the, the change that it makes in the individual's life now and for all eternity, 
But let's also rejoice in that because it tells us that the hand of the Lord is with us. Now just because people are being converted doesn't tell us that a church must be doing everything right. It could still be getting some major things wrong. But it does tell us that if people are being converted in a church that the hand of the Lord is with them. And that's an amazing thing. That is an awesome thing. Do you wonder what to pray for for our own congregation? Well, here's something really biblical and really practical that you can pray for for our church this week. Pray that the hand of the Lord would be upon us. Or as Ezra and Nehemiah put it, that the good hand of our God would be upon us. That's something we can always pray for. Whatever is going on in the life of a congregation, we can pray that the hand of the Lord would be upon us. And so many believe. And as they do so, just as it happened when Cornelius and those with him believed, the news of what has happened spreads. And just like they done when the Samaritans believed, the apostles send someone from Jerusalem to look into it. Uh, they sent Barnabas. He's a good choice because he was highly regarded by the church in Jerusalem, but he was also a Cypriot, and so he was used to living among Gentiles. And when Barnabas comes, what does he see? Well, it's a beautiful phrase in verse 23. Barnabas comes and he sees the grace of God. The grace of God, it's a fairly common expression. People say there, but for the grace of God go I. Royal proclamations often begin, Queen Elizabeth II, by the grace of God, and so on. But do you think of the grace of God as something that you can actually see? Well, it is. It's something that you can see in the lives of other people. And particularly in the context here, it's something that you can see in the lives of new converts. And so I can actually make you an offer today that perhaps no one else has ever offered you before. And that is that I can show you the grace of God. So do you want to see the grace of God? Well, here's how to do it. If you're free on a Wednesday morning, come along to the Bible study at 10.30. And you'll be sitting around the table where chances are the majority of people weren't brought up in Christian homes. And some of those sitting there have become Christians relatively recently or even very recently. And as you hear them talk, as you see the change in their lives, you will see the grace of God. That's one option. It's not the only option. Here's another option. At the church lunch after the service today, sit down at the table of someone who's started coming to the church in the last while. And ask them how it is that they started coming to church. And you'll get to hear something of God's work in their lives. The grace of God is on display right in front of our eyes. 
And surely that's something that you would want to see. When Barnabas saw the grace of God, he was glad. And I don't understand how any true Christian wouldn't be glad. So Barnabas comes, at least on one level, to be able to report back to the apostles about what's happening. But he also comes to help. He comes to help. And this is the challenge. This is a bit that churches aren't necessarily good at. In many ways, and this might sound strange, but, but I'll explain it in a minute. In many ways, conversions are the easy part. Now, they're not easy in the sense that conversion isn't a momentous change in someone's life. Conversions aren't easy in the sense that they don't cost the eternal Son of God to die on the cross. They do. But conversions can be easy from our perspective in the sense that we often have a very small role to play when that happens. Conversion is God's work and often God converts people in a way that doesn't leave room for any human being to take the credit. And is that not what we have seen even here in recent years? God at times brings people into contact with some of us or or he brings them out to church and they're converted without us doing very much at all. And that's amazing. The fact that we are hardly involved at all is such a gloriously humbling thing. It is gloriously humbling. Because what a thing it is to be able to to point to someone's life and, and to talk about what God has done. But if that new convert is to grow and mature, then that's the point where we're really going to need to invest in them. Yes, even their, their maturing in the faith is God's work, but, but we are going to be the instruments God uses. Uh, to, to, to quote the title of, of one book, we are to be instruments in the Redeemer's hands. I read the following line in a book this week. Uh, the writer said, Mature Christians have a responsibility to help, believer, help new believers grow in the faith. Yet most Christians do nothing more than hand people a Bible and leave them to their own devices. Is that a, a generalization? Yes. Is it a, an exaggeration? Maybe. Is there a lot of truth to it? Most churches do nothing more than hand people a Bible and leave them to their own devices. What happens when people are converted in Antioch? Well, firstly, Barnabas comes and he sees that God has been at work. And then in verse 23, he exhorts them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. To prepare them for the fact that the Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint and to equip them for it. Why? Because he is a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Good men will do what they can to help others grow in the faith. And as even more people are being saved, what does Barnabas do in verse 25? Well, he goes to look for Saul. Why? Because he realises that it's too much for him. And he recognises that these new believers need the gifts of others as well as his own. 
In the New Testament, we simply don't have one man ministry. No one man has all the the gifts that, that, that will completely fill the needs of all God's people. So he gets Saul. What happens when Saul comes? Well, for a whole year, they meet with the church and teach a great many people. And obviously... If you understand the church to mean the building, you'll be confused here because you can't meet with a building. But the church, uh, the word church is clearly being used here in the sense of the people. They meet with the people for a year and teach a great many of them. So here you have Greeks. uh, They have no church background. It's not like they're Jews who at least know the Old Testament. They know nothing. And so for a year, Paul and Barnabas meet with them and teach them and in doing so they're obeying the great commission have you ever wondered what the job description is for ministers and elders well we looked at various parts of that last winter during our sermon series on eldership but one place we didn't go maybe we should have gone was a great commission at the very end of Matthew's gospel where Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Those are our famous words, they're well known words. But often when we think of the Great Commission, we think of it in a lopsided way because we often just think of the going part go and make disciples. But the going isn't the main point of it in fact the word go isn't even a command it would be better translated as you're going make disciples as you are going make disciples in fact there is only one command in the great commission and that is the command to make disciples so how does the church do that how does the church make disciples by going baptizing and teaching so what is our calling as elders here uh, for those who God brings in uh, as well as for those who are already here well it's to teach them to observe all that Jesus has commanded us and we'll we'll do that in various ways Our our bread and butter is morning and evening worship Old Testament, New Testament week by week Then we have the Bible study on Wednesday for those free during the day. We're planning to restart in August an evening study that will go through one of the great summaries of the Christian faith. And for seekers and new converts who God brings into the church, I'll meet up with them every week or every couple of weeks to do the likes of Christianity Explored or study a specific part of the Bible, maybe one-on-one, maybe with one or two others. And they'll also meet up with anyone who wants to, to study a Bible book or another book, no matter how long they've been in the church. And in light of this passage, in light of the Great Commission, can you see why we do that? Can you see the Bible's emphasis on teaching new converts? And while there is a need for a particular intensity of teaching when someone first becomes a Christian, we never move beyond our need of it. 
That's another reason not to think that you need to have everything figured out before you become a church member. Because by becoming a church member, you're not saying that you know it all. Rather, you're saying that you believe in certain key doctrines and you're promising before God that you're going to commit to certain things in order to help you grow as a Christian. Teaching all that Jesus has commanded is a a lifetime thing, a lifetime of teaching, a lifetime of learning. If you ever get to the point in the Christian life where you think you know it all, well then you're in trouble. Paul writes to the Philippians, to write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. And what does that imply? Well, well, doesn't it imply that not to be reminded of these things is dangerous? And actually, one of the, the goals of Christian teaching is not just that you will know things, but that you will be able to teach others. Again, I think it's something we often overlook. Paul tells Timothy, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. He tells Titus, Older women are to teach what is good. The author to the Hebrews says, By this time you ought to be teachers. It should be our expectation that once someone has been in church for a while, once they've been sitting under teaching for a while, that they would be able to teach others. Uh, Maybe that's one-on-one, but maybe it's in just in general conversation rather than, than formally sitting down and doing a Bible study with them, but there should be the expectation that, that as we receive teaching and as we keep on receiving teaching that we're able to give it out. And perhaps in the future, these new converts are the ones who will be meeting up with the new person every week to study the Bible with them rather than me. We don't want to be in the position in the church where, where a new person comes in and the only person who, who is able to, to meet up with them and study with them is the minister. It's not one man ministry in the New Testament. It shouldn't be among us. So as a church we need to see and take seriously our responsibility to teach believers, particularly new believers And new Christians need to see that it's not just about them believing in Jesus, but otherwise their life not really changing. But in many ways, it's about having their whole way of looking at the world turned upside down and seeing how the teaching of the Lord Jesus applies to every area of their lives. And the new Christians among us We'll see that first and foremost in God's word. But, but they'll also see it in the lives of those who've been Christians longer than them. Now sadly there are, are some who've been Christians a long time but who don't show much grace. Or there are those who've attended church for a long time but aren't actually believers. But just as Barnabas saw God's grace in these new converts... Surely they also would have seen God's grace in him. They would have been able to see that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. 
Notice that this isn't discipleship by watching Christian TV or YouTube or through online church, but it is face to face. Paul and Barnabas met with them for that year. And that's just not the same as listening to a talk online. Even apart from the fact that, that an online message will be tailored to a particular location and the particular needs of the people who are in that location. Even apart from that, meeting face-to-face provides opportunities for informal chats, for questions to be asked, uh, for seeing how people react to things, hearing how they talk about the different challenges they're facing. Paul could tell the Corinthians, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And they could do that because they had seen his life. And the person that you watch on a screen, they may have lots of helpful content. I'm not saying that it's wrong to watch it. But they cannot say those words of the Apostle Paul to you. They cannot say to you, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Because they don't live in your community. You can't see what their marriage is like or what their parenting is like. You can't see how they interact with people when the cameras aren't rolling. God's grace in practice is experienced in the context of relationships. I read an article yesterday where the writer said, every maturing moment in my life took place in community with others. Every maturing moment in my life took place in community with others. You can grow in knowledge through online teaching, but you can't mature as a Christian And those two things are very different. Growing in knowledge and maturing as a Christian, they are not the same thing. And then just in closing this morning, what a picture of God's grace we see in the final few verses. Prophets come from Jerusalem. Just as in the Old Testament there were prophets in the New Testament church at the beginning until the New Testament canon was closed, until the the New Testament was finished, until people had God's word in their hands. And these prophets say that a famine is going to come. And so these new Gentile converts decide to send aid to the brothers in Judea. Isn't that lovely? Just as the first word Saul heard when he was converted was brother Saul. These Gentile converts see the Jewish Christians in Judea as brothers. These Gentile converts realize that the Jewish Christians are their brothers and sisters in Christ. And so they send aid to them or to be specific verse 30 they send it to the elders We don't have time to get into it today, but just notice in passing that they don't send it to some parachurch organization and bypass the elders in doing so. The same book that I quoted earlier, which is about poverty in the UK and the response of the the church, talks about how many Christians in the UK are generous, but their giving doesn't actually strengthen churches in the poorest communities. And then it references uh, this verse and asks this question. What has happened to UK Christians to make them lose confidence in their local church 
to distribute their offerings to the right people and places. What has happened to make UK Christians lose their confidence in their local church to distribute their offerings to the right people and places? Biblically speaking, it is the elders of the church who have the responsibility for and who will answer to God for how they distribute the money that his people give. And that, that may involve sending some of it on to parachurch organisations. It, it probably will. But the responsibility of individual Christians is to give to their local church. And if there are particular causes they think their church should be giving to, then they can let the elders know that. So that's the mechanics of giving. Uh, we don't have time to get into it in detail, but, but it's important when it's there to flag it up. But the big point in their giving, the big point is that the grace of God has shone in the hearts of these Gentile believers. And as a result, it leads to some very practical care for their newfound brothers and sisters in Christ who are facing difficult times. And surely it would have been worth living through a famine to see these Gentile brothers and sisters caring for the needs of the Jews. People who once wouldn't have even ate with them, but now they're sending them money so they can eat during the famine. And it's a picture of the grace of God. And so, seeing the grace of God, we see it on the pages of Scripture, and by God's grace we see it amongst ourselves. If you get fully stuck into the life of this congregation, I can't promise you much in terms of reward or recognition, but I can promise you a front row seat in what God is doing in people's lives, and I can promise that you will see the grace of God. Amen. Well, let's sing a psalm of response that talks about God pouring out his grace. It's Psalm 21. Psalm 21, starting on page 36. Uh, verse, six, verse 6 to 9 and then verse 12. Psalm 21, 6 to 9 and then 12, starting on page 36. In verse 6, we sing of the Father pouring out his grace on the Lord Jesus, who in turn pours it out on his people. And what happens when God's grace is poured out? What does it lead to? Joy. In verses 7 through 9, we sing of how terrible a thing it is to reject God's grace, to try and oppose God. But by God's grace, though that once was us, it doesn't have to be where we end. And so we close with verse 12. In your great strength and power, O Lord, now be exalted high. So we will sing with psalms of praise, your power will glorify. Rejoicing as we see God's power and strength in saving people and in transforming them by his grace. So Psalm 21, 6-9 and then 12, we'll stand to sing praise. <laughs>